Welcome to the Economy of Wellbeing podcast. I'm your host, Mark Anielski. My next guest is Rosie Von Lila. Rosie works at the intersection of finance, public policy, and human flourishing. She's a board member of the New American Alliance, a national advocacy organization serving diverse and women investment fund managers. She's passionate about investing across numerous asset classes, including public equities, cryptocurrencies, and real estate. Rosie attended Burning Man 19 times, that's that festival in Nevada in the desert, and has advanced and worked with Burning Man headquarters since 2013. She's currently a correspondent for the Burning Man Live podcast. She's the author of a framework for engaging people and building cultural and business ecosystems. Through her work, Rosie Van Lila's framework for stakeholder engagement, she has been invited to be a guest at the U.S. Pentagon and a guest lecturer at the U.S. National Defense University. She's frequently invited in, to participate in strategic discussions and action groups focused on inclusion, cognitive diversity, and collaboration. Rosie lives in Brooklyn and New York's Hudson Valley. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rosie Van Lila about a diversity of issues, her ideas on what it would take to run a country based on human flourishing what she's working on now and her new book that's emerging regarding human flourishing rosie van lila welcome rosie van lila to the economy well-being podcast thanks for joining me today on this my pleasure vicious day it's actually my birthday today so i know happy birthday like in the german culture we would we would host our own parties so I could say it's my birthday and you're all welcome to my place if it wasn't for COVID or whatever. Yeah. So Rosie, like I won't tell everybody where we met, but because I'm supposed, I'm not supposed to say it publicly <laughs> according to the party. But, yes. But you're in, you're in Manhattan. You're at the, aren't you living in the little neighborhood in the base of the Brooklyn bridge? That's uh, right. Dumbo, the, Brooklyn. You're, you're, you're definitely, I mean, you're a giant of a husband. Of a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is a giant. <laughs> He's a giant. And you know, Rhea Eisler, like, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've, she's been a, 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 a true teacher for me. I'm a protege of her work. Yeah, no, her, I, I only have Chalice and the Blade, but um, I know the, uh, she's an amazing woman. So tell me about yourself and you know, this shows about people's stories. And um, I think Jordan Peterson said, you know, these platforms are cool or it's, it's all about our stories. So yeah, tell us a bit very about much. your story. You, I mean, you, I know you said, well, you Burning Man shaped you and you said you've been there 19 times, which has got to mm-hmm. be a world record. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, surprisingly not, surprisingly not. Um, yeah, I started going in my late, teens and it has profoundly and I'm only realizing this relatively recently it's profoundly shaped how I view the world and how more so how I interact with people and how I move through the world and what I value and so my what I'm all about is human flourishing right and I'm about playfulness and joy and fun and doing really serious important work around equality of opportunity for everyone 
Mm. And doing that in the spirit of fun and joy, because life's more fun when there's more people who have the opportunity to create fun and joy. Truly. Wow. Well, joy is my favorite word. Um, It's a good one. People call me brother joy, whatever, but (laughs) and and, on the theme of happiness, joy supposedly trumps no, no pun intended or transcends happiness, I think, Uh, because you can have, I I would say that's true. You can have pain, but you can still have joy. Mm. Uh, And so you're, you're an amazing aesthetic woman. I mean, every time I look at your background, it's like, is that real? But you are, you pay attention to aesthetic and beauty. Um, And again, how does this link back to Burning Man? What, I mean, a lot of people don't even know what Burning Man is. And, but to me, it's one of those amazing life experiences where I think you could just be a free artistic spirit and experience joy and abundance. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very much that some people describe it as a permission engine. Mm. It's Burning Man. It started out as an event. It yeah. started out at, in 1986 in San Francisco as a pure creative impulse where two guys built a wooden sculpture and they burned it on the beach on the summer solstice with their sons and their dogs. Yeah. And then they did it again next year and more people came and then more people came and they did it and they kept growing the size of the sculpture until in 1990, the park police came and shut this gathering of 500 drunk partiers down because it was going to be dangerous to burn a 40 foot tall structure on the beach with all these raucous people around. So they took the man down and uh, one of the people who had started coming to the event at that point had been out to the Black Rock Desert in Northern Nevada, which is depending on how fast you drive about six hours or so from San Francisco. And so in, in 90, they went out there for the first time. And while there were 500 people on the beach in San Francisco, only 80 people made that pilgrimage out to this lifeless void in Northern Nevada. Like when we talk about desert, it's not um, a place filled with scrub brush. It's like in the middle of a dry lake bed. And that's right. Yeah. And so they, they had a wild event out there. It was very anarchistic. There was very little organization. Um, it was about expressing yourself. There were things like drive-by shooting ranges and lots of fireworks <laughs> and lots of guns. Like it was the lawless West. And with so few people, you could be crazy like that. And the event continued to grow and grow and grow. And then in 96, there were about 10,000 people there. And this is where you hit the limitation of libertarianism. Yes. At some point, there has to be some kind of organized structure because when everybody's doing absolutely whatever they want, uh, there's going to be irresponsibility and then people are going to get hurt. And right. so like the true anarchists who were there from the beginning said, we don't want this to be more organized. And they they bailed. And mm. Larry, Larry Harvey and some of the other people who had been around for years at that point, um, he was the original guy with the idea to build a sculpture and go burn on the beach. Um, he said, there's something here that is useful in the world and it, it's around creativity and community. And so he mm. and a handful of people who are now considered the founders of Burning Man got organized and they started creating infrastructure and they started creating ways to organize the place so that it could have 
the minimal amount of infrastructure to support people to come and create. Wow. And it became this very, um, it's a very sophisticated, elaborate city at this point. And it pops up every summer at the end of the summer. And it's there for a few weeks. The event itself is open for a week and 75,000 people come from around the world and 10,000 of them are volunteering to build this thing. And everybody's a participant. There's, there's a saying, which is no spectators. Like even if you're there and you're dressed really plainly, you're still there participating and being part Mm. of it. And so out of this world, like, so I started going when I was 19. And so in my formative adult years, I had the opportunity every single year to go to the, to a prepare all year, have something to look forward to and go completely wild with my creativity. Who do I want to be this year? And what do I want to make this year? And so I have been steeped in this mm, philosophy that you can create anything and that human potential is available at any moment, simply through your own idea generation, and then your actions to make that real. That's fantastic. So I thought, I thought I would say something funny, like you must've found the fountain of youth because you still look like you're 19. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) That was a a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You know, it's, it's because I lay off of the, the cheese sausages. Uh, and the creme well, brulee donuts. Okay, I'm gonna edit <laughs> edit that part out. Don't eat cheese dogs. <laughs> well, when you do, you'll and don't eat ripple chips. They're really bad for you. They're all frank and they're so food. tasty. They're, so tasty. <laughs> they're designed to be that way. So, but actually, yep. on your um, what's interesting to me is you know you you are uh, an advisor of the financial service industry in New York, and um, and I've also of course delved into that's part of the economics of well being is how do we sh- basically reinvent rethink the financial system the way we think about money the way we transact uh the way we look at impact um one of the several my guests we talked about impact investment and and here you have burning man what's also fascinating to me is like you go for a week right and you imagine and you play and like as if we were seven-year-olds again and a world of imagination where we're manifesting whatever we want to manifest and there's no money as far as i was understood maybe coffee is some medium exchange but you would negotiate relationships and you would literally negotiate your day as it as it progressed right i want to go flying today i remember my friend went down there and said we had in our mind that morning we're going to go flying today so by the end of the day we made it to the airstrip and we were actually in a plane right and and it but it was all sort of interestingly navigated in every interaction relationship all the way to that airstrip. So my question is, how is it that we can play in this kind of make-believe Burning Man world? And yet we still find ourselves in this denser, heavier, three-dimensional, whatever you want to call it, financial world, where we still haven't transcended. We haven't created this more compelling economy, let's say, uh, and even the stuff that Rianne talked about in terms of, you know, the even the matrilineal system, maybe uh, where, you know, we have a more feminine energy. Um, that's a bigger question, of course. Uh, There's a great question, Mark. So 
couple things. One of the things that makes Burning Man so magical is that it is unmitigated by transactions. Mm. There's, there's actually about a dozen things that you can purchase on Playa, be that coffee, ice, RV services, a pass to leave and then come back in. Okay. Uh, there's a couple okay. other things that you can that you can buy and they're all related to basic needs. Some people would argue that coffee is not related to basic needs. <laughs> we would argue that it is related I, to culture. It's it basic was, to my happiness. Yes, you know. <laughs> but culture, uh, yeah. In, yeah. In part responsible for driving the enlightenment when people yeah. switch from drinking ale in the morning to drinking coffee. Coffee, that's right. Yes. So the coffee has been part of the, the Black Rock City since the very, very beginning. And um, okay, so so it's unmitigated by transactions. And in that space, what arises is the, the it's a context free from instruction on how you should behave. Mm, so every important. other place in our life. I like you slow that down. Context free. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. And it, it, so in every other place where we are, whether that's at home, at work, at school, at the cafe, at the grocery store, there are instructions that we have absorbed of how we are to behave. Mm. And when you're out at Burning Man, you have full agency in your choices because there are no instructions out there. It's a complete blank slate. But not anarchy either. No, not since 96. That had to, <laughs> that had to go the way of the dodo. But that's fascinating, right? So yeah, we, we, we left anarchy behind us because we knew that's the interesting thing here is like, you realize you needed some structure uh, organizing principles to make it still function at a certain scale, right? Right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, there was a real turning point after 96 and Larry, who eventually uh, took on the title of chief philosophy officer. <laughs> he, awesome. yes, he, in nine, it was after 96. So there was 96 was a pretty devastating year. Like it was very destructive. Mm. And while creation and destruction are both a part of Burning Man, there's a difference between I create something and then I choose to destroy it versus I create something and then somebody comes and lights it on fire without my choice. Like that's, mm. that's un, like that's destruction without permission and destruction right. without my participation. Uh, so there's a big difference in that. And so after that, he started really talking about community because you had these throngs of people who were used to being in an anarchistic culture do whatever the, the F you want. And now there had to be some structure put in place so that the, the likelihood of you dying was reduced at least a little bit. Mm. It, that, that's not an exaggeration. Like it, it really was around that. Wow. And your, your Burning Man ticket still says, you know, you risk dying by coming to this event. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's not meant to be a quote unquote safe space. Right, you know, it's a, right. it's a place for you to live on your own edge. So um, mm. how do we, how do we bring that magic out into the world? It's a fantastic question. We're at this turning point in human history that is very exciting. Mm. And we're at the point where we've, we've reached, we've pretty much reached peak capitalism 
And what I mean by that is the efficiency of the system is at near perfection. Mm. You can go on your phone, open up your Amazon app, pick what you want, select it in two seconds, and it'll click be there buy tomorrow. now, and yeah. it will arrive tomorrow. That's right. That is an extremely efficient system. And it's coming at the cost of a lot. And so we're recognizing in this time of growing wealth divide, more and more people are saying this isn't working for humanity. And so the exciting thing is that capitalism is a system that we live within and it's a system that can shift. It's a culture that can shift, but it takes us choosing to move beyond that. And that's where Rion Eisler's work comes in. She says that the reason that both capitalism and socialism have failed us in many regards is because the fundamental culture that both of those philosophies grew out of didn't include taking care of our planet, doesn't include mm. caring for people. In fact, at the time that Adam Smith wrote his treatise and the time that Karl Marx wrote his, both of those were periods of time where women were literally legally owned by men. Yeah. Either their fathers or their husbands. They were an asset. <laughs> they were a means of production. Yeah. Now women, and this is all from Rion's work and, and, and you know, the, she's the brilliant. And, uh, 14 so books she, that she's, she's a Holocaust survivor too. She is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she, um, she escaped with her family to Cuba on the very last boat that was accepted into Cuba. It's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, her, her life story is remarkable. <laughs> Just remarkable woman. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so the point is, is that I'm really inspired by the fact that we have more and more women working in economics, mm. more and more women working in legislative policy, more and more women working in leadership roles, being on corporate boards who bring with them most often a caring for people, a caring for our planet. It's, it's hardwired into us uh, hormonally through estrogen. And, and attention to indigenous people would say relationships, right? So exactly. Because exactly. economics has lost sight of all my relations that we're all relational in being. Mm -hmm. uh, and I often say like one thing we can riff on is, you know, the common word Rihanna and I have used is wealth. I mean, the wealth of nations. I mean, I always point out, if you look at a digital copy of it, you won't find any definition of the word wealth, which originated from the old English means the conditions of well-being. Mm -hmm. So economics is about human flourishing, is about the well-being of the household, is about the well-being of nature and ecosystems. And it's just all still there. The vibration of that word and the truth is still there, but we've, yeah. I don't know, inverted everything in a strange yeah. way. And so thank goodness. And we're seeing in the, the results of the latest happiness poll at they're saying that, you know, the resilient countries are what they have people who have a trust in government, a trust in mm -hmm. institutions and female leadership. Mm, Isn't wow. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, you've got Scotland, you got a female leadership in Finland, uh, happiest place. Right. And uh, I won't say anything about America, but whatever. It's, you know, it's a work <laughs> in progress. <laughs> well, we don't, we don't have a, we don't have a woman president. No, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's still uh, a possibility, though, but that it, is coming. But it gets that to your point coming. about, you know, if, if we imagine an economy of, of relationships, of compassion, of true stewardship in the original notion of economics, then we're onto something profoundly important, not seen, well, since the fencing of the commons. Mm-hmm. So if you were president, Rosie, what would you do? It's oh, Monday. Monday. It's Monday. <laughs> it's like, come on. It's Let's pick up a pencil and get to work, folks. Let's get to work. That's, <laughs> that's what I've been asking all my guests. Like, so if you were the premier of the province right now, what would you do? You're the president of the country. Okay, things wow. are getting better. COVID, maybe, maybe people still deny it exists. And we still got okay, well, okay, so a healing dialectic if I, going on. If I were in office at this point, I would be coming into office or I would already be in office with an outstanding team. Right. Thank you. That team would be experienced and cognitively diverse. They would be from all over the country and all walks of life. Yeah. They would represent every part of this country. So in that, I would have a wealth of knowledge and uh, the ability to crowdsource wisdom in what we should do. I love it. Crowdsourcing wisdom. Sophia. Yes. That's the word for wisdom. For wisdom. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That, that's one of my favorite names. I think it's a gorgeous <laughs> word. It is gorgeous. Yes. So, um, yeah. And then it would depend on what challenges we're facing, um, facing in that moment. I think what would be most important is to create rules for the game. So while we're in an administration, we have a game that we're playing, the big game mm-hmm. for okay. however long it is. So if we're in there for four years, yeah. there's going to be a big game that we're going to play. And so what are the rules of the game? And the rules would be about what we value as a team. They would be um, about, there would be agreements in how we show up to play the game. And for me personally, what I value is on a team, there are things that you do and that you don't do. On a team, you have each other's backs. On a team, you don't talk bad about each other. You don't, you don't gossip about each other. And um, integrity, doing what you say you're gonna do when you say you're gonna do it. All of those are things that I would put in place for this team mm. that we have. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then we make a, a, a game plan from there. And then we do it. We, then we make the trains run on time. So you're doing this right now with our friend, Brianna, you're doing every miracle morning, Monday, you're getting up way you know, for me. <laughs> <laughs> but. So I haven't, I haven't been in the room um, as much recently. So seven days a week, she hosts a room on clubhouse, 7am central. It's called the miracle morning room. And it's all about creating a strong routine in your life. But, but isn't, and, yeah, it's, an, it's amazing. It's just a simple affirmation. I will say, it's like saying the Declaration of Independence every day. We find these things self-evident that we are mm. full of joy and abundance. Mm-hmm. Hello, like what? We didn't get the memo on Wall Street, but anyways, it's uh, I find it fasting, and I find her inspiration, and yeah, mm. uh, just so you've you've experienced that. Um, but that's oh, a yeah. daily kind of affirmation of that we find these things self-evident, right? That. We're, we're always in a state of appreciation of what I would say is the truth of abundance, right? And that nothing is 
broken per se. And we are, we are gifted beyond our wildest imaginations. And again, in the spirit of Burning Man to manifest what we put our hearts to. And yet my question today is like, why do we seem to be stuck? We're stuck in a lower seemingly vibration of fear. Maybe the pandemic has been our friend. It stopped us dead in our tracks to slow down enough. Hmm. Pay attention. And, take a, and take a breath. Take a breath. Ironically, to take a breath during a pandemic that affects your lungs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, let's see. Well, first thing is, I think it's the nature of this plane. That's the very first thing. And this, I, I think this plane, of like this, of being in this dimension here on this planet in this it, particular life, having it, this experience right now. It's, I said this morning, it wasn't a joke, it says it's dense, right? It's denser. Yeah, the, the density uh, of 3D. The density. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, the nature of this place, the, the way that I make sense of it so that I can play games and have joy and have fun while doing serious work that's important for humanity. Yeah is I think about it as a video game uh, and I, which is not unlike the myriad technologists who surmise that we live in a simulation. Right. Matrix. To me, yeah. Yes. And to me, that's not unlike what God is. Right. So this mysterious ineffable thing that drives creation and life and has the flowers bloom and the sunrise Okay, so it could be a computer, could be something else, but what we do know is we can't see it, but we can, we can feel its power. We experience it every day. And so I think about, okay, if, if we live in a video game, I think about before your soul came here, Mark, and before mine came, we're getting ready to play the video game. We said, okay, I'm going to choose my avatar. I'm going to go, I'm going to go, go. The procreative act of my parents. And here we go. Ready? Exactly. Set, like, like, what if you chose your parents? <laughs> okay. Have you ever thought about that? Well, my that friend means- in New York said, she said, we choose our parents. My friend, yes, from Brooklyn, I, she I says, love that. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. And, and I know this is weird on the show. It was like, she said, you know, we, we came from the council of souls. Like we incarnated, we chose. <laughs> wait, I didn't AKA, AKA the, the video game championship. Mm. Council of Souls, they're just up there with the joysticks playing. Yeah, but it's really a yeah. profound thought because it goes back to, I've, I've been reading Steiner's book. I'm reading this crazy book, Cosmic Memory. Uh-huh. Rudolf okay. Steiner. Like Steiner was tapped into some wild stuff. Mm-hmm. And he, this book's about the story of Atlantis and Lemuria. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. So maybe the earth was denser. The atmosphere was denser. Water was less dense. I mean, we have different technologies. We could do things with water that we can't do now because mm. water is denser. And I'm like, wait a minute. What if all of this was actually true like 15,000 years ago? It yeah. was completely different. We were living in Atlantis. We were manifesting things in ways that people today, yes, we have technology, but we can't even imagine because we could build the pyramids. Because why? Because we knew how to use water and because it was less dense. You know, all these crazy thoughts and like, wait a minute, is this guy, would Steiner go to Burning Man or something? Or did he? <laughs> no, he was an Austrian. He was, like, he was a crazy German Austrian guy that had these insights into the Akashic record of what the heck is the Akashic, the memory of what, of what we were. And here we are today and we're having 
a total recall, maybe. Mm-hmm. And you're you're right. I think, I think Rudolph. I think Rudolph Steiner was spending some time walking in the woods picking mushrooms. Absolutely, he was into mycelium, which he. <laughs> 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 a lot of ayahuasca, I'm sure, but uh, um, no, but it, but actually, in all seriousness, so I, I was that's why I like flipping because here you are in the denser world of advising people in Wall Street and the financial world, and with a sense of humor, and you haven't been kicked out of the temple yet. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's but, its own story, though. But you navigate like like I navigate in this kind of matrix, in this kind of trickster-like way, knowing. Uh, well, we know what money is. It's like just energy. And, and yet we've spent, we, our whole world is surrounded by this weird thing that we just created out of thin air anyways, like magic. And yet we seem stuck in the ability to move into that space of what nature teaches us is abundance. Mm. So what is it about economics that in your mind, why is there this fear and scarcity mentality versus an abundance mentality? How do we transform? You know, okay, so two things. Um, I want to come back to scarcity in just a second, <laughs> but going back to Rian's work. So she mm-hmm. created this spectrum, the, dom- the partnership domination social scale. Yeah. So when <clears throat> both capitalism and socialism are oriented towards being dominator systems, yeah. what you have, which it, they have been, you end up with a hierarchy and hierarchies are not inherently bad but you end up with a hierarchy with in-groups at the top and out-groups at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And how do the folks at the top stay in power? They stay in power through force, fear, and coercion. So the system is designed to have fear baked into it so that the power structure can stay the same. And on they, the other end- They've also codified the laws. So they define the rules of the game by codifying laws. Sure, they were sure. The Romans. Yep. And the British perfected it or kept it going. Mm-hmm. So we have this, we're stuck in the matrix of the laws that define our behavior relationships. Sure. But an indigenous culture says, no, no, we don't recognize your laws are written down. Our laws were never written down. They were oral. They were lived. Mm-hmm. They were relational. They're, they're not dogmatic. They're not dogmatic. And there's no doctrine. Right. And they're always in deference. So the indigenous people always start with sweet grass. They always start or whatever. They start with an at, an attribution to creator. Right. Mm-hmm. And levels us all. We're all the same then, as opposed to my authority is with the judge or mm-hmm. with the high court or yep. with the laws. And so that's to me is also a fascinating attribute of our culture that. Yeah. The, the, the other part of that scale is partnership systems. Yes. So in a partnership system, you do still have hierarchies because hierarchies are biologically wired into us. Mm-hmm. But she calls it a hierarchy of actualization. So okay. in that system, what's baked into the system is caring about human flourishing. Mm-hmm. What's baked into the system is caring about our planet and having the system work for everybody, including so- nature. So caring so, for your flourishing and David's flourishing uh, that I'm actually serious about. I care about you as a human being and your ability to be the best you can be. Mm-hmm. I want that for you. And I yeah. hope you want that and for me. Of course. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, and so if you, if you are a judge in the system or if you are a manager or you are a CEO, your role then in a hierarchy of actualization is to help 
the next generation come up to support mm-hmm. them in actualizing right. and coming from a place of caring rather than a place of domination. And her work goes so deeply into this. Like it, it starts from the time, from, it starts from infancy and it's baked into everything, Mark. It's baked in everything, including our sexuality and how we relate to each other. Like her, it's, it's pretty profound stuff. So to your question of like, you know, how do we go from, okay, scarcity. How do we go from this mindset of fear and scarcity? So, so here's the thing I realized recently that scarcity is a tool Mm. and scarcity can be used for manipulation, which it often is. Yeah. It can also be used as a tool. It is inherently neither good nor bad. It's all in your intention and how you use it. Mm. So if you use scarcity to bring people present to the finite nature of this life, right? If you have them be present to how scarce their parents are, the mm. fact that they only have one or two of them, or for some people, zero, mm-hmm. the fact that your children are scarce, the fact that this experience and conversation that we're having right now is scarce, rather than using that to manipulate people, you can use it to orient people towards a space of appreciation and awe and gratitude for life. Wow. That makes this podcast uh... Jordan Peterson said, you know, it's these conversations that are so precious and yet so scarce Hmm. because someone's going to listen to this conversation. It's like, who is Rosie and who is Mark and who, why should we listen to them? Mm -hmm. Because we just boldly decided to have a conversation about our story Mm -hmm. amongst seven point whatever, five billion stories. And everyone's got an amazing story, but we can't hear them all or not all at once. Hmm. Wow. So you made a, you've, you've suggested some topic, like the notion of regenerative economics. Can you talk about what that means to you? Mm-hmm. So regenerative economics, first thing is regeneration. So what is regeneration? Well, as distinct from sustainability, sustaining something means that you're keeping it the way that it is and you are continuing it as it is. Regeneration, on the other hand, goes back to repair what has been damaged and creates the circumstances for thriving. So your body regenerates itself all the time. If you get a cut on your hand, your immune system will go to work And then your body and your cells will regenerate at that wound site to make it so that your skin is whole again. And it's working as it's designed to do Mm -hmm. what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Capitalism in itself is not disastrous. Okay. What is happening right now is, however, we can use the tool of capitalism to create businesses that are regenerative. So fair markets are wonderful things. They help um, advance humanity in a lot of ways. They help uh, make life beautiful in a lot of ways. When we have a business that's regenerative, a good example of this, there's a, a snack food company called Epic. Now, Uh, contrary to the advice of eat less meat, they have a meat company. 
And what do they do? They're, this was um, co-founded by Alan Savory of the Savory Institute, who works on pasture restoration. And the, what they've managed to do are um, rewild thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of land that had begun to be desertified or yeah. was already desertified. And by doing livestock rotation, whether that's bison or cattle, so you rotate it through different fields. So you'll have them be in one area grazing and uh, going to the bathroom and walking on the excrement and pushing it into the ground. And then they'll move them to another field and the rains come and it, it, the soil loves all that fertilizer. Yeah. And so you end up restoring the topsoil in those areas where the animals are grazing. The key is that you manage it. So you time them from one place to another place to another place such that the land has time to regenerate. So uh, the Epic Foods Company, they then take these animals and they slaughter them and they make foods for people and then they sell them in the marketplace. So that's an example of a regenerative business as opposed to a degenerative business which would be a feedlot where you have um, you know, thousands of animals living in suffering in confinement and having to be pumped full of antibiotics. And then they, they come to market and then humans eat all of that. And it's really unhealthy. It's completely degenerative in every sense. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's one example of a regenerative business. Another one, I like to talk about topsoil because it, it really is the, yeah. I would say the number one thing that we can do to, to shift what's happening with our, right. um, with extreme weather and, and changes in the climate. Um, yeah, and I've had Zach, Dr. Zach Bush talk about regenerative agriculture and uh, farmer's footprint, restoring the soil. Mm-hmm. And it's yes. yes. The massive yes. Uh, impact of glyphosates uh, on the oh, yeah, huge. Systems. But yet yeah. he says in two rotations, in two rotations, the soil is back to its natural vitality, which is extraordinary. It's not like a death sentence. It actually restores itself if you leave it alone. Life is resilient. Yeah. Biology is resilient. So this this other example of a regenerative business, there's a guy named Dr. David Shearer, who is a fellow burner, and he's a huge environmentalist. He has a company called Full Circle Biochar. So biochar Mm. is a soil amendment. All it is is charcoal. You put it into the soil and the bacteria and life loves it. And it restores, you know, the one to two inches of topsoil. Uh, this is a, a, a game ancient. changer. And it's ancient. Yeah. The Toltecs were using it, right? We, yeah. we now see that they were those ancient people of South America and, yep. and Mexico were using uh, char, right? Uh, exactly. Soil. Yeah. It's amazing. So, so these are examples where you have people who want to take care of the earth and they also want to earn a profit. And, um, and so they're doing that through businesses in the capitalist system that are at the same time regenerating the planet. How do you then, I'm going to scale right up through the whole, through the e- economic scale where my observation is the pandemic has interestingly enough, in my mind, actually caused us to think about the possibility of local living economies um, Mm. that actually can flourish where the supply lines are completely, you know, cut off where we can't 
we can't even get an oven because there's no ovens, right? There's it's like the Monty Python cheese shop. You can't get an oven unless <laughs> Rosie finds one in Brooklyn, sends it up up here, right? I mean, that's how ridiculous it's become. But to your metaphor of like patch, uh, so so I, I'm wondering, you know, to me, the whole the world uh, trade model. I mean, these are all models that are actually incongruent with what Adam Smith actually wrote about because he said, you know, two countries trade because they have comparative advantage ecologically. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't just trade rice for rice because it's good to move rice across the Pacific, <laughs> which is what's going on. I mean, the U.S. produces as much rice as probably China does. And so you have this bizarre kind of trade model where the only thing that's actually changing hands is more money. Mm-hmm. But, but the notion of living within your ecological resilience uh, of the Turtle Island, that's a different model. And I mm-hmm. think it's almost like COVID has shown us that that's actually possible that we mm-hmm. can we can live within this constrained model yes constrained by a pandemic but so what hope do we ha- do you have that we might actually learn from this and maybe adopt a different model for trade of commerce mm. or do we think we'll just I think go back that... to what we were I know it's a big question tough t- so tough to say on that um I do suspect that we're heading into the roaring 20s. I think that (laughs) this decade is going to be amazing Mm. post-pandemic. Are you familiar with Kate Raworth? Yeah, Donut Donut Economics. Economics. I said it fitting that she's an iconic Canadian, you know, coffee dessert called a donut. And I always say, (laughs) what happens to the holes in the donut, though? Just kidding. Really bad joke. I know Kate. Yes. Somebody's eating them. Yeah, somebody's eating them. <laughs> um, <laughs> getting the donut hole, Kate. getting huh? the donut hole, Kate. Yeah. Oh. So. No, we put joy. Uh, I say to Kate, we put joy in the hole. Like that's that plugs the hole. Put joy there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's flourishing right in there. there so again, here we have another woman in leadership. Yeah. Another woman in scholarship, in economics who is being a luminary with her thoughts coming from the perspective about caring for the whole and seeing the whole W H O L E, not H O L E. That's Get right. Your mind off those donut holes. Get the- <laughs> <laughs> we actually sell the donut holes at Tim Hortons here. And uh, anyways, they're economic donut holes. Yeah. That'd be good. That'd be good for a, a, a donut shop. No, but but metaphorically, like th- this is really powerful. I think you and I have talked about it because uh, the the Iroquois, so the Onondaga up in upstate New York, Orrin Lyon says it's the end of the two or wampum treaty with Washington. Like what's emerging is the circle wampum, the circle, the donut. So you see, the circle seems to be now the. Uh, the metaphor and the image that was rejected, like when Herman Daly went to the World Bank and he, he said the economy is the box bounded by a circle called the ecosystem, he was thrown out. You can't, you can't present that picture to the world. That's incongruent with our notion of the economy, which has no bounds. Mm-hmm. So it takes Kate to put a, like a, a boundary uh, around, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. and then now suddenly it's the timing's perfect. It, people are like loving her ideas and it's, which is fantastic. So mm-hmm. again, but that image of the circle wampum too, emerging as, as uh, the Onondaga uh, 
uh, this and the Iroquois Confederacy, right? So it's funny that we go all the way back to the earliest days of formation of, of America and, and Canada. And yeah. nothing's really lost anymore. It's like, what are we supposed to do with this new image? We'll circle up. Circle up. <laughs> Have a convo. Let's talk. Burning Man, right? It's a circle. It's like, right? Yeah. The effigies in the middle of the, of the hub exactly. and the spokes, right? Exactly. Yeah. So again, it's like, I love the playing with the image and then saying, well, how do we act? Because the medicine wheel says there's no spiritual enlightenment isn't the apex of, it's not a pyramid. It's a circle, Mr. Mm. Maslow. And he learned that from the Blackfoot. He came here to Alberta to learn about the medicine wheel. And they didn't even call it the medicine wheel. It's like it's a sacred circle. It's a hoop. So what did he do? He turned it into a pyramid. Like, oh my goodness. No, <laughs> way to go, in, dude. Way to go, dude. Like spirit was in the East. And, and I guess some of his journals actually admit that that's what he actually learned. Hmm. So, um, so to me, that's a fascinating, it's just not simply a metaphor. It's a way of, of, organizing and governing and and managing assets and thinking about money um you know it's interesting you just made me think of something which is how on maslow's hierarchy it's a it's a regular pyramid so the base is taller than the top is excuse me it's wider than the top however if you invert that and you had the bottom as your basic needs your basic needs really are quite small Really but your self-actualization is infinite. Well, th this is it, Rosie. I mean, you and I as financial people, like I've been saying, our actual physical needs, like the, the need for basic things of a good life are actually not that. They're maybe worth, worth $70,000 a year for a couple, right? Uh, and even with kids. So like we know that if that's a kind of happiness economic threshold, then why is it that so many of us aren't living at that threshold while others live at 100 times that threshold. And we think that's normal and acceptable. And yet we could, we could actually, we could achieve the good life in, in with all the creation, we creative ideas we, we have with the money systems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I haven't, one of the areas that I'm interested in learning more about is, is UBI and, how mm. that could become practical. Uh, I have a friend, Raman Frey, who um, is, is, feels very positive about uh, distributed ledger technologies, so blockchain and the sort. Yeah, yeah. As, as being, he says that that could make UBI a, really a practical solution. I haven't learned much about Oh, that it space. absolutely, you know, I've been delving into this myself, and it's absolutely possible if you think about each individual, we all have assets, we all have gifts. That's again, what the indigenous people say, everyone has like sure. certain gifts, right? And mm -hmm. why you came into this world, you came in with some mm -hmm. gifts and your aunties or uncles were actually praying for your vision quest to when you were a teenager, like when you're 17 about to go to Burning Man or you went to Burning Man, you know, and maybe it was like a vision quest that you, you became aware, right? Of, of those gifts and those assets then become the basis of fungibility. Like mm -hmm. You will draw an income, you'll make a living wage. Hopefully you make a living wage. It was about 20 bucks an hour. And we can create a system in which that happens for everybody. Again, going back to the roaring 20s idea, I think that this is an extraordinarily exciting time to be here on this planet and yeah. to have the 
ability to work and create and contribute. And what's exciting about it is that we have more transparency than ever through the internet. Yeah. And we're more connected. Information travels faster than ever. And so through that, we have the opportunity to grow. Now, again, the, as a tool, it can be used for very bad things, destructive things. Mm. But it can also be used for creative things. And so I, I assert that we are continually on the frontier and there are so many human beings who care about humanity and care about our planet that we're increasingly organized and working faster at creating solutions that move us in that quantum leap, if you will, for humanity. So yeah. it's, you know, Buckminster Fuller said it, we're either going to flourish or we're going to perish. And I'm standing in the camp that we're heading towards flourishing for, for more and more and more of humanity. That's fantastic. So what exciting things are, are you working on that are giving you hope? Ooh, um, I'm, writing, <laughs> I'm writing a book on human flourishing. Wow. Yes. And um, that is bringing me to life every day. Wow. Um, fantastic. It, it, the writing practice. So I have a wonderful guide. And he said to me, Rosie, you have to ask the book what it wants to say through you. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you try to write the book. True. And, so right? I, and don't let yeah. anyone dictate what you should write. I've had that happen too. Oh, really? Write this. And I'm like, why should I write what you think I should write? <laughs> I've got this in my knees coming through, right? I'm, I'm a tab. <laughs> but it's funny how people will love to like dictate what you should write. It's like, yeah. or, or then you worry about, well, if I write this, I'm people going to criticize what I wrote. It's like, well, who cares? Oh, yeah, care. that's that's definitely happening. Yeah, like I got, <laughs> that is happening. Um, that is definitely, I'm, not even stealing myself for it. Like I'm, I know that the more real I am and truthful in speaking what I see, mm. the more fire it's going to draw. Nonetheless, that's the path of courage. That's the path of full self-expression. And so that's the path I'm choosing. Yeah. So are you so, calling it human flourishing or are you, what are you, are you just still playing with TBD, it? TBD? TBD. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that is, I've realized that that's what all my work is about is human flourishing. And so let's see, I'm, I'm doing a lot of public speaking. I'm you know, booking keynotes and talking all over the world on a few different topics. One is about creative cultures and how do you build innovative cultures inside of your community or your company mm. or your constituency. Um, another is about how do we quit the American caste system? Ooh, yeah. That's so, yeah, a lot of that are that talk comprises autobiographical stories about my own journey with recognizing the American caste system and my my place in it, my role in it, mm. and then how I how I've quit it because it is something that we can quit and it's a really powerful and choice. So you're saying our own sort of white place of privilege too. So um, self-reflective or or I use I use different language than that now. Well, different. Um, yeah, I'm sure you do. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, it is, it's recognizing that there is a caste system in America, mm. that it is real, that its effects are real. And while there may not be laws on the books now that say that women or people with brown skin, um, there are no laws in place that say that we can't 
achieve the same thing that a light-skinned man can. There are no laws in place. However, there used to be. And there's still an effect and an impact that happens as a result. And it's real. And there's there's an economic cost to all of that. Because this was codified, right? The language was spoken. 100%. 100%. The doctrine of discovery was written. And was, I mean, yeah, was, going way back to that, yeah, like, like, you know, <laughs> in the last hundred years, there were plenty of laws in the United States that explicitly created segregation, that explicitly um, precluded people from good paying jobs, explicitly precluded them from management roles because of they had brown skin. Yeah. So um, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So those laws don't exist anymore, but the impact of them still do. Mm. And, and the American caste system is real. There is a real cost. It shows up in our healthcare system. It shows up in uh, people's mental health and it shows up in our economic well-being. So that's something that I talk about. And what else am I up to? Um, I lead programs for human flourishing. And so I've, I, Uh, lead premium coaching programs, which has been a real joy in my life. It's so fun supporting people in creating their financial flourishing and health flourishing. And it's fun. I'm out to create a team of a hundred thousand people in the world who are living their best life and who are making a contribution. And the whole thinking is that when you can create a team of a hundred thousand people who see themselves as being part of team humanity, you can create that, you can grow that to a hundred million people. And when you can have a team of a hundred million people, you can really affect culture. Right. So that's what I'm out to do and inject fuse, fun, joy, play, and make lots of creativity so that we can all self-actualize. So awesome. And where, yeah. do, we, where do we find you? Not that you need to be overwhelmed by more attention. <laughs> <laughs> My website is vonlila.com. That's V is in victory, O-N-L-I-L-A.com. And I'm on Twitter. I'm pretty active on there. Wow. At Rosie Von Lila. So last question, where did you, the Von, where, where are you from? The Von Lila, like what's the origin of your surname? This is a great question. My chosen name is Von Lila. Oh, right. You told me that. Lila, and it came in two parts. So Lila means play. It's a Sanskrit word or a Hindi word. It has many, many meanings all related to play. And then in French, uh, it it means lilac. Uh And Vaughn is German for from the place of. So my name Uh, is Rosie from play. Wow. And you know what Lila means in German? Um, What? Purple. Ah, yes. So there you go. You are like, wow. That's all the the all the flowers you're just flourishing and you know well you know this last skill testing question what does flourish mean in french flower exactly there we go to flower Uh, yeah what's an exclamation mark at the end of this podcast (laughs) well thanks for joining me that was fun yeah thank you that was really wonderful super so enjoyable yeah we'll uh we'll get on with flourishing okay let's do it Okay. Enjoy your three <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Okay. Okay. Bye Ciao. For now.